Today's guest is Merle Saferstein. And one of the things I like about Merle is she's a little bit older than most of my guests. And I love older guests because especially sparked older guests, which all of my guests are sparked, because they are a great example of what is possible. I see so many people think their life is over at 55 (laughs) and they think they're too old to get started on something new. And she, when you listen to her story, has started over a few times and she's just getting started now at 78, which is amazing. And she is all about living and leaving your legacy, which I think is an important message for us to hear at our age, because we start to think about when we're gone, what are we going to be remembered for? How are our kids and grandkids and the people that we've touched in our life going to remember us? And maybe we haven't yet done that thing that we're going to be remembered for. That's quite possible. So that's one of the things I love about Merle. But the other thing that is unusual about Merle that many of my guests and me included didn't do till later in life is follow our heart. Merle has always been clearly in tune with her heart, following her gut, following what where she was being led that made her feel good that made her happy. And when she wasn't happy, she quickly switched gears, pivoted. She was a delight. I spent a few minutes talking to her. We just met before I recorded. And she was so interested in me, which I thought, wow. I I mean, she is all about connection and really learning about other people. And that that's from the heart as well. She wasn't really worried about what she was going to say or how she was going to press people. She was just concerned and wanted to know more about me. And so I thought, wow, I feel like I'm coming as a guest on your show. So she's just uh, just a wonderful, wonderful human. And I'm so glad that the universe brought us together. And I think you'll really like her. So with no further ado, let's get to the interview with Merle. Hi, I'm Lori Wright, also known as Not Your Average Grandma. I created this podcast as a place for women in their second half of life to go to to receive inspiration. If you are at a place where you believe your best days are behind you, it is my hope one of these episodes will spark you to think differently and lead you to a new belief that your second half may actually be your best half. I want you to stop seeing your age as a limitation and start seeing it as your superpower. You have years of experience and value that the younger you never had. So it's time to lean into that and use it to fuel your future. No more letting age or circumstances hold you back from the pursuit of a more fulfilling and fun life. The happier we are, the better the world will be. So instead of settling for what you don't want, how about going after what you do want? Listen in and let something you hear prompt you to take the first step in making the rest your best. Welcome to another episode of Living Your Spark Second Half. And man, do I have a good guest today. She is a perfect example of someone who is living her sparked second half. 
Merle Saferstein. Hello. Hello. I'm thrilled to be here and anxious to talk to you about this. Yes. And if you could see Merle, if you're on my YouTube channel, she is sitting in this most beautiful garden. And she said, that's her backyard. She lives in Miami. So it's gorgeous. Some people have virtual backgrounds. And I thought for sure that was so beautiful. It must have been a virtual background. (laughs) Yes. But Merle is 78. And I want to start with that because I think it's so, we had this conversation we just met. Uh, She actually had a publicist reach out to me uh, to schedule this. And so we were just getting to know each other. And she is so youthful. You're just so young and vibrant and gushing with, well, energy, but you're so interested in me. You know, it was funny because she was asking me all these questions and I felt like I was on her podcast. (laughs) She doesn't even have one, but it's just like she's so interested in people and life, that social connection, which is so vital when we get older. And I just think you're going to really enjoy hearing from Merle and her story. So one of the the things I learned was that I I learn a lot more if I listen than I talk. Mm -hmm. And especially when I'm on podcasts, I want to know who I'm talking to. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that I'm still learning. It's like, I, I, I like to talk a lot and it's when you talk, you don't hear anything. It's true, but I like to talk to. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you share a little bit about your story? We were just talking about how both of our mothers told us that we shouldn't do the thing that we wanted to do because it wasn't secure enough or wasn't going to make enough money or, you know, reasons that they were trying to be helpful, but we ended up going down a path that we probably wouldn't have gone that was more logical versus more heart driven. And, uh, and then isn't it interesting how we do that? And then we finally come back to where we're meant to be. If we're smart enough to do that, if we're brave enough to do that, because it is a scary thing to kind of like, okay, I don't think that was right. Let me, let me try this other thing. So, right. Yeah. When I grew up in the 60s, um, the only jobs that women had mostly were nurses and teachers. And while I knew I am an educator, I mean, that for, first and foremost, that's who I am. I really did have the desire to become a psychologist. And my mom, like you said, my mother just said no, no. And I don't regret. Um, I was very fortunate because I had a really wonderful career. I started out as an elementary education teacher. I worked, um, I directed a preschool for a few years. And at some point I became a Holocaust educator. And that happened just by chance, by meeting someone on the beach and and the rest is history. But I was- Well, describe that. I I love stories like that. This is a great story. Um, I had quit my job. I was working as an administrative assistant at a high school with um, a boss who was a narcissist and a really difficult man. And his secretary felt like she had total reign over me and she would not let me do anything without her permission. It was really it was a a messy situation. Very toxic. Yeah. And And how old were you just to give some? I was the time I was um, 82. I was. 38. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I, I shared an office with someone who was a psychologist. And one day he said to me, you know, Merle, you're in such a no-win situation. And I loved the fact that I was creating a PTA and I was working with student government and doing all those really fun things that I loved, but it was just not good. So I quit and I started walking. I live near a beach and I started walking the beach every day. And while I was, actually I was jogging on the shore and walking, um, I met a man who was doing the same thing I was doing. He was, we would jog by each other every morning. We were sitting very close to each other. And this was during Christmas vacation. And, and it was right, actually right before I quit. Um, and he was writing and I was writing and he was reading and I was reading. And one day he stopped to talk to me. So his name is Tom and he had just left the priesthood and he was working on a, um, a documentary, and then he left Miami. So he was only here for a month that I knew him. And then he left, and then I quit my job. And we continued to, we started to write to each other and continued writing letters on a daily basis. And Tom ended up, he had several jobs, but he ended up in New York. And he ended up doing um, PR for a, an operetta on the Diary of Anne Frank. And the person who produced it and who is the president of the Anne Frank Center asked him if he would like to come and be the director of the Anne Frank Center. At the same time, someone had found a photograph album of Anne Frank in their in their dresser in Germany and sent it to the Anne Frank Center in Amsterdam. Anne Frank Center created an 800 photographic exhibition on Anne Frank in, in the world, but also surrounding surrounded by the Holocaust. And so Tom, my friend's job was to send this around the country. And he called me up. I wasn't working. He knew that I journaled. I've been journaling since 1974, and I was really spending a lot of time writing. And Tom said, would you like to bring this to Miami? And at that point, I really needed a job. I mean, it was it was time. It was two years later, and I had to be working. But my, it was a volunteer job. And my husband said to me, you have to do this. It speaks to your soul. How could you not? Mm -hmm. And Frank has always spoken to your soul. It and gives me chills. I'm like, yeah. I, they're continuing chills. I don't get that very often. Yeah. Was, I read, you know, I was, that was something I had to read in elementary school. Right, right. And it, wow, it was so, so powerful, so powerful. So I think most of the people who are listening to this, since they're a lot of them are our age, probably have a very similar feeling about that story. Right. And it's, it's weird because it's almost like he's like a soul. I think you have soulmates. Like we, I think when I was younger, I used to think there's one soulmate and it's that love of your life. But I believe now we have soulmates. I think my roommates in college are my soulmates. Uh, it sounds like you guys really had this spiritual connection. We did. We did. Um, and so I brought the exhibit to Miami and it was the first city to have the exhibit. And my goal was to have 50,000 people in an editorial in the Miami Herald. And we had, it was, it was a six week exhibit. We had a, well over 60,000 and the editorial. And I did a lot of student programming. And as a result mm -hmm. of that, um, two of the women from the Holocaust Center in Miami came to one of the programs. I had invited them to come and they then called me after the exhibit and said, would you come volunteer and help us do student programming? So I went as a volunteer and two weeks later, their secretary quit and they called me and said, would, would I be 
interested in being a secretary. And I said, I'll do it for three months. But if I'm not in the education department, I'm out of there. And they had just hired someone with her PhD. And so that was not going to happen. But she ended up to be a disaster. And so they fired her. The president of the center at the time was the president of um, one of the universities in South Florida. And he took me to lunch and grilled me for three hours and said, okay, you can do this job. And so I became the director of educational outreach at the Holocaust Center in Miami. Okay, stop, stop. Like, more chills. This is such a great example of what I always say, because you never know what something is going to lead you to. And here you are, probably most people would say, no, I'm not going to take that volunteer job because that's not going to pay me money. Initially, when Tom asked you to do that for six weeks, but you did it, you did it anyway. It was a stepping stone to the next thing, which then was a stepping stone to that, which was so aligned with your soul and your, your heart. And, and it didn't take long. (laughs) No, it didn't take long. And so I was at the center, I think for about six, six months, maybe not, no, it wasn't even six months before I, I went into that position and then stayed there for 26 years and had the amazing opportunity to work with about 500 Holocaust survivors. Oh, that's so amazing. So amazing. I have to tell you too, that I have visited Dachau in Germany. Yeah. yeah. Not many people get the opportunity to visit a concentration camp. That is, I was 18 and I went over there on a school trip. My grandparents paid for and it was funny because I, I wanted them to just give me money. And they said, no, only a trip to Europe, take it or leave it. Wow. So I was by myself. And so I hooked up with a, a school. Um, It was it was, you know, a group thing. But most of the kids were from a, a high school near me. I actually was, this is even funnier. I went it was a high school present graduation present. And I didn't do it because I wanted the money. And I waited a year for them to give me the money and they wouldn't give me the money. And so finally I was like, rats, okay, I guess I'll go. So I didn't, I missed kind of the boat of going with people my age. So I was a a year, well, actually a year ahead in school. So they were really all my age, but it was a two week trip. And we went to several different countries and I'd never been and to any of the, I hadn't been outside of the US. Such a amazing experience. But so much of that trip is with me today. I mean, it just like made such an impression on me. And that concentration camp, it's un- un- unbearable to to, wit- to be that, you know, be on those hallowed grounds. Yeah, it's just like, uh, uh, yeah, it's just unimaginable, really. Yeah, it is. And, and through the whole experience of working all those years with Holocaust survivors, just for me, what I learned from them was the resilience of the human spirit for people to have experienced the kinds of things that they experienced that are really unimaginable to any one of us and to pick up the pieces and to begin a new life, to bring life into the world is really remarkable. And so for me, I did a lot of student programming. By the time I left, um, at the very end, we were writing a grant and we had to figure out how many people since the beginning of the Holocaust Center or the beginning of our student programming, 
how many lives did we touch? And that's between these prejudice reduction programs where we had students sitting at a table with 10 students, a Holocaust survivor and a facilitator. Um, and there were anywhere from 250 to 800 students at a time. Um, and I did 10 to 12 of those a year. And that was college and high school students. And then we did a teacher institute every year teaching teachers how to teach the Holocaust. We did a huge um, visual arts and writing contest. And we also had a speakers bureau that sent um, speakers out to 18,000 people on an average a year. And so we, at the very end, when I left, we had almost reached a million children whose lives we had touched, which to me was just remarkable. I mean, I had no idea until I started really doing the math and figuring out if one teacher teaches X number of students. And it was it was really a, an amazing, wonderful opportunity. But to leave there was not easy. You know, so yeah. I, I was loving my career, and yet I knew there was still more. Yeah. So one thing that came up for me is that the it's so important to have meaning in what we do and your what you did had meaning in so many ways because you were affecting the lives of the holocaust survivors by allowing them to tell their story and you were affecting the children the people that heard the stories and were impacted by those stories. It's just like, I can't imagine how much of a difference that made to so many people. I mean, you talk about the number of lives, but when you talk about the meaning that goes with those lives that you injected into these people, wow, I can see how that would be hard to leave. So for me, I've never been able to do anything less meaningful. That's just, I have always needed to fill my soul. And when I don't, for example, the two years that I wasn't working, I would sit in interviews and I would be choking and think there is no way I could take this job. And I needed to work. I mean, it wasn't like we had the luxury of my not working, but I couldn't. I just knew that I had to do what spoke to my soul. And that's, so, that's very unusual. And you are very brave for doing that. Yeah, it was really important to me. And yeah, I do must have a supportive partner. I do. 56 years of marriage. Uh, yeah, he, he's, he was wonderful. He was really wonderful in, yeah. in supporting me in that and in, in everything I've done. Really. Yeah. Well, one thing I will say is happy wife, happy life. <laughs> Right. I love that saying when I heard it and I didn't hear it. It was probably like 10 years ago at a wedding. I heard it and I was like, that is so true, but it goes both ways, right? Happy husband, happy life. But uh, when you follow your heart and are lit up with what you do, he gets such benefits. Absolutely. No question, because I'm happy all the time. You know, I, I would I walk in happy. In fact, when I retired and I started doing new things, he said to me, are you ever going to stop smiling? And I said, no, that is not going to happen. So, you know, oh, that's really so great. Grateful. Yeah, that's what I, I am a big smiler. I saw a T-shirt when I was in Sedona at the life. What is it called? Um, they, they had it's a uh, shop that sells the life is good you know the life is good brand i was there yeah and it's it's called uh it said um oh gosh now i'm gonna forget what it said but it was like 
something to do with smiling. I'm like, uh, I'll, I'll think of it and I'll have to put it in the show notes, but maybe it'll come to me by the end of the episode. But yeah, it's, it, it was like, I already had picked out a t-shirt. <laughs> so I was, I was like, I wanted to get that one. I was like, oh, I'll have to get that next time. Yeah. But I love that. So what, what do you, you left the job that was so meaningful to do right. what? So here's what happened. I I knew that there were other things I wanted to do. And I also, um, there were issues at the center and I felt like it was time. I felt like I had done everything that I really wanted to accomplish. And so I took a year. So from, from January of 2011 till December 29th, when I walked out the door at the end of that year, I spent a year looking at what I wanted my life to look like. And what I did was I presented to myself 25 questions, questions like, how will you make money? Um, what, what, what is going to make you happy? If you write, how can, is that going to be a full-time job? Is that going to be enough for you when you've had so much interaction and I really am a people person? So I asked myself all those questions. One of the questions that I asked myself is, who am I? And of course, I've been journaling for so long that that was something I certainly could answer easily. But I answered it in four pages. I spent a lot of time on that question. And then the next week, the question was, who will I be when I am no longer the director of educational outreach? And so I said, you know, before I answer that, I'm going to go back and look at what I wrote. And I had not once mentioned my title or my job at the Holocaust Center. And then I said, okay, then that's not an issue. That is not, I'm not, I'm not who I am defined by what I did. Yeah. And that so many people do that. The identity is so wrapped up into when I quit my corporate job uh, for the first time, because I've had a few stints going back and forth. But uh, when I did quit it for the first time, it, it was so hard to be in a social situation when people said, what do you do? And you, 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 it's like, uh, right. And when yeah. I was in, in network marketing at the time and, oh, I sell, mm -hmm. you know, Whatever. body. I sell Shakeology. <laughs> I sell challenge groups. <laughs> and that's like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's it's just hard because it's easy to identify in the culture we have with titles. Right. When my husband retired from his, his practice of podiatry, I kept saying, you need to think of what you're going to do before you retire because it's really important. And he didn't. He kept saying, I will, I will. And, and he retired and he said, I have no purpose. And basically that's how he's lived the rest of his life. And that's, that just doesn't work for me. Yeah. So is I, he still uh, around? He's still, yes, he is still around. He's okay. watching a lot of television. Oh. So hopefully not I, the news. <laughs> I think we're done with the news, especially in Florida right now. We need to not be watching the news. Um, so what I, what I came up with was I knew that I wanted to do a few things. I knew I wanted to teach. I knew I wanted to write. And I knew I wanted to volunteer. And w by the time I left, I, by the time I finished, and walked out the door, I knew exactly what I was going to be doing. And what mm -hmm. I decided was I had wanted to write this one book about a hotel in Hollywood Beach that I, since 1985, I wanted to do that. And I got my job at the Holocaust Center in the beginning of 86. And so I just couldn't 
do that and raise the family and do everything else. But I never forgot about the book. So what I did was I started, I didn't always take a lunch hour, but when I did take a lunch hour, I would go in the lunchroom and write. I would journal or work on a part of this legacy project that I was starting. And so I wanted everyone to see that I'm a writer. I wanted them to understand. So when I left, I could say I'm leaving because it's time to write a book. And, and for the survivors, especially because I had become so attached to so many, they really gave me their blessing. They said, you've done your work, you know, you go write. But I also, during that year, while I was writing, I kept thinking, what am I going to teach? I mean, the, who I am is a teacher. And I knew that I needed to do that. And so six months in, I was writing in my journal and the word legacy came down on the page. And I said, you know, maybe there's something to that. I've been helping the survivors pass along their legacy of remembrance for all these years. So maybe I can do something with that. And before I left the center, I had developed a course called Living and Leaving Your Legacy, which I started teaching the following October. So I first wrote a book. And then when I sent the book in to be published, I started teaching this class. And I also started volunteering with a hospice organization. At the time, they were just forming a camp for children who had lost, you know, family members. And I had directed a day camp for children for 350 kids for five years. So I said, oh, I can help you with that. So I got really involved and um, worked as a volunteer, I also then eventually started training their staffs, different hospice staffs, on doing legacy work. And so that's kind of where my career took me after that. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell me more about the living and leaving your legacy program, because it sounds like it's like some kind of course people can take. Right. It is a course. Um, so basically, what I did was it was an eight, I started out with an eight week course and I figured I'm going to do four, four weeks on living your legacy and four weeks on leaving your legacy. Oh, and, yeah. and so basically my, my feeling is that how we live our life becomes our legacy. And even if you don't do anything in terms of, of some kind of legacy project, people are going to remember you for, how you were, how you acted, not necessarily what you said, but how you acted. And so that was the premise of, of that, you know, that piece of the course. And then I would do different legacy projects. So there are all kinds of projects. People can do a, an interview, you know, just a, a, a video interview of themselves. They can do an, an audio recording of themselves. They can do a scrapbook, write a, write a memoir, journal, to someone, I, for example, I have journals for each of my grandchildren that I've been writing since the day they were born. Oh, you can do a collage. You can do a legacy letter. You can do an ethical will, which is is a form of a letter to whomever you choose. It can be to your loved ones. It can be specifically to your children, grandchildren, friends. Uh, one of the things that's really important in my legacy work is to understand that one does not have to be a parent in order to leave a legacy that we touch lives and <clears throat> friends, people in our lives are interested in, in that. So for, for a few sessions, I did it that way. And then as, 
as I move through this, I realize that really the bottom line is it's much more about how you're living your life than than what you leave behind. And so then the course became six weeks of living your life and two weeks of of projects. And um, since since October of 2013, I've taught 68 classes and and lecture. You know, I do a lot of lecturing and speaking and workshops, basically helping people understand the importance of how they live their life and not put off what they love doing. You know, fill your life with joy in the moment. So that's that's the basic course that I've done. Mm. So what is it that you want people like, first of all, who is it for? Because it sounds like it could be for anyone. It is for anyone. Yeah. And secondly, like, what is the transformation you want them to have from beginning to end at the at the end of it when they look back and say, oh, my God, that was whatever. What what do you want them to have? So so the youngest person who's ever taken my class was 38 years old. She was in a class with a man who was 92. And I will never forget this. He looked at her and he said, what in the hell are you doing here? And she said, I just, she actually came because she wanted to get her parents to do some kind of legacy project. But but that really changed. And, and she continued on and, and realized that for herself. And, she, and what she said is, I, I want to live the best life I can. And so what I, what I stress is <clears throat> that we all want to know we matter. And I, I help people look at their lives and understand how they can live the best life. And that to me is really my goal. And all of this is, is to help people understand that we have choices and we are going to be remembered for, for what we're doing in our, in our lives on a daily basis. Um, so basically, I mean, I, I've taught these classes and now I'm feeling like there needs to be a transition. So I'm moving to the next step as a result of having written the books I just wrote. And what the next step? What is that? So the next step. So I just finished a project that I started in 2002. I in 2002 I had um, accumulated 340 journals that I had filled. Oh yeah, and, I read that in your right. application. Yeah. And I decided, I debated, I have two children, I debated whether to leave my journals to them. And at one point I said to myself, there's no way I can leave these journals to my children because I wrote them for myself. They're for my eyes only. And then I thought, but maybe there's something in here to pass along. As an educator, I kept thinking, I can't possibly have filled this many journals without having some words of wisdom, something to share. And so I decided to embark on this project where I was going to go back and read my journals. So the journals in the project go from um, 1974 to 2016. And by 2016, I had um, accumulated 259 journals. Now I have 200, uh, I mean, 359 journals. Now I have 380 journals, but the project goes from there. And so what I did was I picked topics in my life. I started out with 40 topics. I ended up with 70 topics. I, for 20, however years, 20 years, no, for 14 years. It took me 14 years to go back, read the journals, take excerpts according to different topics, put them into the computer, 
when I finished in 2016, at the end of 2016, I finished that phase of it. I had 70 topics with anywhere from 75 to 450 pages, typewritten one space pages. And then I had to determine what it was I wanted to share. And some of it I knew even when I took it out of the journal, there were no one was ever going to see it, but I wasn't done looking at it. Yeah. So I picked I picked 22 topics and decided I would write two books with 11 topics in each. And then I had to go down, go back and whittle down those topics to chapters that were reasonable in size. And so, um, I mean, if you think about, for example, parenting was 450 pages, marriage was 450 pages. I had to just keep whittling down until I got to around 30 pages. And um, that took me five years. And then I took a year to edit volume one, which which I published last June, and then just published last week, published the second volume. That's amazing. So each topic is like a chapter. Each topic is a chapter. It stands alone. The thread goes from 1974 to 2016, except cases like the Anne Frank exhibit, where I started in May of, of 85 and finished it in January of 86, or the March of the Living when I when I took went on uh, to Poland and Israel with groups you know, to visit the concentration camps, those are just very specific two week, you know, two weeks, but 30 pages long. And going back and, you know, going back and looking at my life and seeing, you know, there are lots of books that are written in journal form and they're chronological, but this is chronological, but it's also a subject. So I look at my journals as a tapestry. Mm. And I look at the chapters as threads of the tapestry. Right. So it's the chronological within the topic. Yeah, I love that. What yeah. an interesting concept and idea. What did you title the first volume? So both volumes are titled Living and Leaving My Legacy, as opposed to Your Legacy. And when I decided to share it, so initially it was going to just be my children, my nieces, my nephews, people I was close to. But then as I started realizing there's there's really information here for a lot of people, I decided to share it for two reasons. The first was because I want to encourage people to journal. I want them to understand the benefits of journaling. I mean, to have my life for all those years in a way that, you know, we think we remember things, but there's no way. I remember a lot more because I wrote. I mean, I'm convinced that my memory is really sharp as a result of that. There's very little that I read in my journals as I was reading them that I didn't remember or remember differently. Maybe a name every once in a while. I think I have no idea who that person is, but for the most part, I really do remember. Yeah, um, I have a question on that because sure. as you were describing that, I thought, wow, I didn't journal. Uh all, all those years ago, I did write my husband when we dated in college, a poem <laughs> that he kept. Uh, so when when he was became my second husband, he pulled the poem out and he still had it. I was like, oh, oh yes, I remember that when I was crazy in love with you. But uh, but that yeah, other than that, I really didn't keep any type of journal except when I was required to do so in like English seventh grade. Right. Uh, so. When you read back your life, 
you're you're out of that period in your life. That's your past. And you've evolved in all those years. You've become somebody different. You've become, you've, you know, you've you've grown, you've developed. So you have what I always like to say is a new brain or a more evolved brain, a more expanded brain. How was that reading that back and kind of reliving it? You know, what struck me was that I am still the exact same person I was then. And there were there were times I could see real growth. So in my marriage, I could see growth as a parent. But for the most part, I was shocked, actually, at how much I haven't changed. My Who I am has not changed. My behaviors have sometimes changed. That piece wasn't as striking to me as going back and reading some of the painful times. If someone had told me years ago that half of my journals would be filled with pain and half with good things, I never would have believed it because I feel like such a positive person. However, what I realized is in writing about those painful times, I worked through and changed my attitude. And so that was really surprising to me. The other thing, my husband kept saying to me, why would you want to go back to all that tough stuff? And I kept saying, I have to. I I, I needed to go back and, and see. And I did really understand. I mean, there were certain areas. We had some financial difficulties. I really understood the, the role I didn't take, what I didn't do, and was able to really say, okay, you know, I made these mistakes. And I it was all there in black and white because I was writing, I mean, from 82 on, I was writing multiple times a day. I mean, I had my journal with me all the time. And so I have a huge record. I mean, people in my life will call me and say, can you go back and see when, you know, what happened then? The other thing, while I was taking excerpts on topics, if there were excerpts on people that I thought they would want to see, I would then copy those excerpts out and share it. The other thing you said about the time. So if you think about this, I was reading in one time. I was then taking the the topics in another time and putting them onto the computer. And then I was living in another time. So I was sometimes in three different time zones and would say to myself, um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what day it is. You know, I have to look at the calendar because I'm like lost in all these different time periods. So that was pretty fascinating too. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I think that I, I, you know, it's such an interesting exercise because I, I I believe the older I've gotten, the more empathetic I've gotten and Mm -hmm. the more understanding. And so looking back at those mistakes that you made just a, with a different perspective, has right. got to be super valuable. Right. Um, yeah. Judgmental for sure. Mm, yeah, me too. Well, when I understood that be, judging people meant I was yeah. like, there was something in them that was in me that I needed to work out. And when right. I realized that I was like, holy <laughs> crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is just a mirror. Um, so the other thing oh, that oh, I can I interrupt sure. you just yeah. the, second, the second reason why I wrote why I'm sharing the book is because I want people to look at my life not because it's my life but to look at my life as a mirror into their own and to 
to really look at that. So at the end of each chapter, I have journal prompts where people could actually answer questions based on the topics. And then I have um, reflection of what I felt going back and reading these journal prompts. And in some cases, you know, there, there are um, several years now that Mm -hmm. seven years actually. Yeah. So so going back and seeing that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love how you're making it more like they're involved. So it's, it's activity driven. And and so that's very valuable. Uh, So the last thing that I wanted before we wrap up is one of my challenges and I know it's one of my students' challenges because uh, a lot of times my students are just like former me. <laughs> so I know them well, uh, but I I write down, need to journal more, or like my goal is to journal X t- times a week. And it's like, it's always felt to me like more of an assignment versus like, oh, I just want to journal. It'd be so nice because I've all, I have this workaholism issue. I, I always feel like I need to be busier fill things up and journaling to me is more of a, it's not an activity that I feel like I'm getting stuff done, even though I know it's really important. I know. So what tips can you give the listener in, because you said you wrote several times a day and what tip can you give somebody just to get started? Like how long should they write? Uh, should they set a timer? Should they do it at the same time every day? How can they kind of make that a habit that will stick? I think the very best thing to do is to understand, first of all, the gift that you're giving yourself. And so, you know, while you say it's not, you know, you're not being productive or whatever, I want to tell you, Lori, that I realize that I have given myself the greatest gift by having a record of my life in the way I do. So, and another thing is, you know, it's it's a companion. There are times where I work through issues. You know, if I have an issue with someone, I might do a dialogue in my journal or write that personal letter in my journal. And so there are lots of ways to do that that are really productive and constructive, but it is such a therapeutic tool. My you know, what I say to people is, yes, it's, it's probably, it depends on the person. I mean, some people are very regimented and so they need to do it at a certain time every day. In the book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, she suggests that you write the very first thing in the morning before you do anything else. And she calls them morning pages and she suggests you write three pages. And I I did that for many, many years. And it's it's wonderful writing. It, it almost it comes out of your unconscious because you do it right when you get up in the yeah, morning. Yeah, I love that. It's stream of consciousness. It's a it's a wonderful technique. Yeah, put it maybe next to your bed and before you get out of bed, you can't get out of bed until you do it. Right. I I I literally, I mean, I got out of bed because my husband was sleeping. So I went into another room, but it was the very first yeah. thing every morning. What I my, my husband sleeps, he gets up before me, but I always okay. have to pee. So I, I might have to go pee and then go back and do it. But I love that. I really think I'm going to do that because I, I agree with you. When you wake up is when you're you're most connected, I think, to that subconscious. That Because you wake up with ideas. A lot of times you wake up and then you go back to sleep. If you like, I sometimes will wake up at like five o'clock in the morning. I'll be like this great idea. And then. I'll go, right. okay, I'm going to write that down when I 
when I get up and then I lose oh, it. You have to, write down, to me, I have to write down the, the idea yeah. at least mm-hmm. because otherwise it's gone. Yep. But I wake up sometimes at one o'clock in the morning and, and find myself writing for an hour just because if there's something that I haven't processed, that's that's the time to do it. But what I say to people is, you know, people say, how do I start? Where do I start? And so what I say is start with this. Right now I feel or right now I am. And it's just just start with just in this moment, because because journaling puts us in the present. And to me, living in the present moment is really important. And so that to me is one of the ways that I'm I'm hoping that or I need to or I wish that, you know, just just very simply just giving yourself a simple prompt. And there are prompts, journaling prompts online. All you have to do is is just Google journal prompts and they're there. So journaling prompts for for self-care, journaling prompts for um, self-awareness. I mean, all kinds of prompts. But but really, just to even start with right now, I. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I always am encouraging, and I just did. I recorded a podcast that I'm gonna uh, publish later today. I, I do it sometimes. The when I might just my me myself and I, I'll like record and then I'll publish it the same day. But I did it on big dreams, and that I don't think a lot of people dream big dreams, and uh, so what they really are because they scare you. It's like big dreams. I'm just like a little person. I'm not, how can I have big dreams, but they're really our deepest desires. So it's kind of like what they are. And so when a journal prompt that came up for me, cause I'm that's fresh in my mind was if I had a million dollars, I would Absolutely. Because, because people can't think limitlessly. So like have fun, have fun with it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I like that. Absolutely. Yeah. So did we cover everything, capture, cover, capture everything that you wanted to talk about today? Sure. I'm happy. I, I feel mm-hmm. like I, um, hopefully people will learn something. Games. Oh, absolutely. I think it's been great. I have enjoyed it. So I think they will. Uh, so what do you want to leave with? What message? What, uh, you know, how can you tap into how can someone who's listening who doesn't maybe feel and isn't able as good as you have been able to do really follow your heart, which is what will spark you ultimately is to follow your heart. So what words of encouragement um, advice can you give to somebody who uh, really desires to live a spark second half life? I think it's just important to, to understand that we only have one life and we only, we have no idea how much time. And so I, I feel it's important to just do it now. Just if you've got something, I know that in the moments that I am not doing what speaks to my soul, I am not happy. And, and so to me, the gift we give ourselves is to follow our hearts and to follow our souls and to do what brings us joy in the moment, in the moment. Don't yeah. put it off because this all we have is right now. Yeah. The new term is YOLO, right? <laughs> YOLO. You if you you see that hashtag or anything, you listening, uh, it means you only live once. And I love the fact that Mel Robbins named one of her dogs that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. 
true. We do only live one time. And so this is it. This is, this is well, it. Who, knows? I mean, who knows what happens after, but for now, this is. Yeah. Only. This is the only one you're going to remember. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this way. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. It was a delight to meet you and to thank you. connect and hear about your story. I love what thank you're doing. Thank you for having me. I really okay. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the Living Your Spark second half podcast. If you'd like to watch my guest interviews, you can find the video version of this podcast on my Not Your Average Grandma YouTube channel. Also, you can check out what I have going on at the moment by going to my website at notyouraveragegrandma.com or find me on Instagram or Facebook at Not Your Average Grandma. If you like this episode, please mention it to a friend and don't forget to leave a review so I know the topics you like best and can bring you more of that content in upcoming episodes. Last but not least, remember to always listen to that inner voice that will never steer you wrong and make living from the most sparked place possible your biggest priority. When we do that, we make the world a better place.